I feel like my brain is metaphorically lighting up because things are making so much sense. I'm, I'm just thinking, wow, yes, I can understand that. I see that. How amazing. And, you know, so I think it's, it's a really great approach and very accessible and uh, writers should really be paying attention. Hello, hello. I'm Melissa Bourbon, and this is the Writer Spark podcast where business, creativity, and the craft of writing converge. Welcome. 15 years ago, I was an avid reader, but not a writer. I didn't know anything about the actual craft, and I knew next to nothing about the publishing industry. But I had a dream to become a published author, and I set out to learn everything I could. Now, I'm a number one Amazon and national best-selling author of more than 35 novels. I've published traditionally, and I recently plunged into the world of indie publishing. And I teach people like you how to grow in their craft and find success in this ever-changing industry. I'm an ordinary person, a wife, a mom, a daughter, a teacher, living in a small North Carolina town. Through Spark, I am doing what I love more than anything in the world, which is teaching and helping others on their writing journeys. I'm here as your partner, as you navigate your own writing journey. I'm here to help you understand the essential elements of the writing craft, to build your confidence, and to help you find the success you desire. Welcome to the Writer Spark Podcast. Seeing things from a new perspective can really give you a new way of seeing and internalizing things. That's how I felt after reading Bill Burchard's new book, Writing for Impact, Eight Secrets from Science to Fire Up Your Reader's Brains. This book really hit home for me on so many levels. There are a ton of craft books out there, but this one is different. It's science-based, and it gives a new vernacular and a new understanding of what most writers already do. Writing for Impact really got me thinking. I spent my early writing years gathering every craft book I could find, devouring principles and concepts, and trying to figure out how to incorporate it all into my writing. Needless to say, I became overwhelmed, probably like so many of you. Many people have many ideas. This is why the writing resource books that I write are very practical and geared towards the working writer. I've been overwhelmed by writing books and theories and advice between the pages and it can be too much. Sometimes you just need it spelled out for you quick and dirty. That's what Bill does in Writing for Impact. The fundamental principle is to fulfill the desires hardwired into the human brain. There are eight of them and that's what Writing for Impact is all about and it's what we're going to talk about today. Welcome to my guest today, Bill Burchard, who is the author of many books, but the one that we're here to talk about today is Writing for Impact and the science behind engaging readers through sort of through through tapping into the brain, essentially. So welcome, Bill. I can't wait to yeah, jump in, you. but I'd love to hear a bit about your background first, sort of your origin story. Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. For the past 25 years, I've been uh, pretty much involved in writing books. I'm a nonfiction writer. I'm not a fiction writer. Um, I write my own books. Uh, six of my own writing for Impact is the sixth, and I've written 10 for others um, in business, economics, uh, health, et cetera. And, it, and uh, before that, I was a freelance writer in the business press. Uh, work appeared in Fast Company Strategy and Business 
chief financial financial officer, et cetera, those kinds of magazines. Before that, I was the editor of a company business magazine. So writing's pretty much been my life. And, uh, and at this point, I wanted to share my latest passion, which is how science helps us engage readers when we know more about it and know more about uh, what we've what we've learned in the last couple decades uh, on from what happens in the brain. So how did you come up with the, I guess, the idea to to do this research and to connect engaging readers in fiction with brain science, with neurology? Yeah, it evolved. Um, I'm not a fiction writer, but I'm sure fiction evolves as well. And it was... First, it was uh, I'm at late stage career, so I wanted to pass on what I felt were key strategies in writing better. When people come to me and and I coach them now and in, in writing their own books, it's like, what do I tell them? And um, there were there were about eight or ten things that I thought were really important, and I I started to look into well, why are those important? And I I originally had a biology degree, never used it, been a writer and editor my whole life. Uh, but when I started poking around in Google Scholar, I don't know how much um, fiction writers use Google Scholar, I suddenly it, there was a treasure trove of experiments where scientists, psychologists and neuroscientists primarily, were looking at what happens in your brain when you read different kinds of things. A metaphor in a sentence versus a, uh, a literal sentence, a simple sentence versus a complex sentence, a, story, uh, a, a, a sentence that started a story versus one that did not. And, and they, they could see all kinds of things happening in the brain. Now, this is basic science. This isn't applied science. The scientists are not trying to figure out how to write better. That's not what they're trying to do. What they, just, what they want to see is just how the brain works, what, what's lighting up in there, what interacts, et cetera. So that really probably goes a lot to the trend towards uh, storytelling and leadership. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, when, when clients come to me, one of the key things they want to do is is integrate stories into their their um, whatever message they're conveying about leadership, whether it's whether it's how to how to be uh, uh, run a more sustainable business or whether it's how to have more empathy or whatever. How do you how do you integrate a story into that? So, yeah, that absolutely. And in fact, that's uh, my book is based or is structured uh, on eight S's, um, the eight S's that engage readers, and the last one is story driven. And and we'll get to that, I'm sure, as we go along. Yeah, I love that. My husband is uh, an educator and he teaches master's students in educational leadership. And, you know, the thing that his students love most is the stories, the anecdotes that he's able to tell because it's, mm-hmm. you know, taking the concept, but then putting it into real life in an engaging way. So now, now that I've read this book, I just imagine their brains lighting up, <laughs> you know, as they're hearing That's- these stories. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, of course, lighting up is a metaphor. The brain is wet. It's a bunch of chemical reactions. It's really wet where there's no fire up there at all. But that's that's the metaphor, of course, that's yeah. lighting up. Those chemical reactions are going on. And and the principal ones that I'm interested in are the ones that are releasing dopamine and natural opioids in the brain that create pleasure. That, it's so fascinating. So as I started to read the book, I came across the one of your... Um, catchphrases, which is the anatomy of comprehension, which I just loved, you know, I mean, you're using mm-hmm. metaphors and similes and, and just these descriptors that are so engaging themselves as you write this book. So I love that concept of the anatomy of comprehension and how the brain processes meaning and reward. Those are the two things that really exactly. informed your eight S's. 
So right. can we just, exactly. let's just dive right in. I think there's a lot to talk about. So let's just dive right into yeah. the anatomy of comprehension, meaning and reward and your eight S's. Okay. Okay. Sure. Sure. First, first I will, um, I will make a distinction here. There's a huge amount of research out there on the, on reading and, and it's often related to things like dyslexia, et cetera. And, and that is where the brain is, is decoding the letters. And that all happens in the rear of the brain. That's where, believe it or not, even though your eyes in the front, the part that processes vision is in the back. Mm-hmm. And that, I, that is not research that is part of this. After the brain decodes the letters and, and decodes the words, a different part of the brain actually is decoding what it means. So my book is all about the meaning. And that happens on the left side of the brain, kind of a racing strip along the left side. It's not bilateral. It's not on both sides of the brain, which many things are. But uh, the language uh, processing, essentially, let's be let's simplify it a little bit. It's, it's looking up the definitions and understanding what those words are. That's happening on the left side of the brain. But that's only a beginning. That's only a beginning. And the simplest language is processed there. And you might say that if, if what you write is really boring, it's really plain words, then maybe that's the only part of the brain that is that is doing anything. But after that, if if you have, say, specifics, if you if you use a, an action verb or you use a, a, a specific um, adjective or what have you, other parts of the brain light up and including the motor circuits which are across the top of the brain the sensory circuits are as well the auditory the olfactory etc all those light up and then on top of that if you have really compelling language it for example with uh the with uh motor action kicking hitting etc then then the muscles in that that would be engaged in real life um if you were actually performing that action a, a little, a very faint echo of a, a micro voltage goes through those muscles as well. So, so when you use specifics, for example, that's, and we all know that's important in writing, right? But, but now we know neurologically why, because it's lighting up the, the language circuit, it's lighting up the, the motor circuits and the sensory circuits, and it's actually lighting up tissue in the body. So you're getting this sort of full brain body buzz when you um, use specifics of that kind. So anyway, that's that's a sort of a, a a quick introduction to the the breadth of activity in the brain. I, I we could go s by s, and I could tell you which parts of the brain actually are lighting up. Some of the parts you might have heard of, some you won't have heard of. I didn't hear, hadn't heard of them before I I researched. If there's one you'd like me to start with, should I just start with the the first? Uh, keep it simple. Yeah, yeah. I think we should just go through each of the s's. I do want to backtrack just a second though. When you said that. Um, comprehension is all the left side of the brain. When you're, for example, looking up, trying to understand the definition of a word that you've never heard before, that's in some, you know, field that you're not familiar with, is, is just sort of taking in that definition that maybe you don't even understand, always left brain, or is that part right brain when you're looking at the definition you're taking it in but you don't understand it and then you get context somehow to help you understand it and that sort of clicks the left brain into action or is it always all left brain 
Well, I, I'm, I'm simplifying a bit here. When, when you listen to anything or you, you read anything, a lot of the brain is activated. So it's just, that's the primary, what they, con, what they call the classical uh, language processing circuit. Actually, a lot of the brain is involved because even in words that don't have action involved in them, say concepts, say like um, a saga, well, there's no action in that word itself, right? But you associate that with action because you've read about a saga before or the saga of your, your neighbor's divorce or something. You, you associate it. So all of a sudden there are other parts of the brain that activate because it's associated with sight, sound, smells, action, et cetera. So um, I don't want to, I don't want to oversimplify too much, but I do that in the book somewhat just to, just to, just to highlight those parts of the brain that are particularly active. If you're, if you're, um, if you encounter a word you've never seen before, then you, you simply, you know, you have to look it up and then you have to associate it with those, those words that are in the definition. And, and that, that can be, that can include, um, that can include a lot of language in different parts of the brain. If it's emotional, it's the amygdala. If it's, if it's, it's, if it's about surprising thing, it's a hippocampus. That's the sea, um, seahorse shaped, um, a component in the middle of your head. Um, if it's, uh, if it's related to something that's insightful, it's a, it's a flash on the right side of your brain. Um, if it's, if it's, um, um, if it's, uh, let's see, it's, uh, let me take another one. Anticipation. It's a thing called the caudic nucleus anticipation being in suspense, et cetera. That's like a little roof over the, the components in the middle of your brain. So they, they all, all those are highlighted, but, but they never operate alone. The brain is a very interconnected place. And, and I, you know, I would say also that brain science is, a, is in the early years right now. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's where everybody's pioneering new research. In fact, the research related to, to what my book is based on is, is new research. And we, we should probably get into that because the basis of the book I'm kind of glossing over here. Um, yeah, well, we can start with that. So what ha I have a, an old high school friend who actually went into neuropsychology and, uh, you know, that was 30 years ago now. So when you say it's in its early stages of research, you know, it's, it's been around for a long right. time, but I think we're just making big strides, right? Oh yes. Huge strides. So if, 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 if again, we oversimplify, not oversimplify, simplify a little bit, there's two kinds of research that go on. There's a behavioral research, which is, which has happened for a long time. Gives give somebody something to read, give them a story, give them a metaphor, et cetera, and then see how, how they react. I mean, do they say they're pleased? Do they react quickly or slowly? Do they remember it very well? That's behavioral research. And there's a lot of that. And there's a lot of that in my book, huge amount of that. Some of that dates back and some of it's relatively recent. You don't need a complex lab to do that. But you do need complex experimental procedures so that you that you rule out factors that might mislead you. So you have very simple sentences. You have, you have three different sets of subjects and one gets this text and one gets that text and one gets it is the control and gets gets um, yet other text. And um, so those are those can be complex experiments, but they're not technologically sophisticated. The ones that are very very much more sophisticated today are the especially the ones using the the modern scanning technologies. Functional MRI being the key one, which is which is an MRI. It takes an image that's kind of similar, like if you if you've hurt your knee or you or, or you've hurt your hip or so, or shoulder, but it it actually is measuring 
the exchange of oxygen in the brain, and we're talking about the brain in this case of the functional MRI, it's measuring the exchange in oxygen. And when oxygen is exchanged, there's a magnetism change in the brain and that creates an image. So we know how quickly basically the brain is burning glucose and which part of the brain is burning glucose. The, 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 the fastest is the part of the brain that's most most activated. So, so that's a, that's a, that's a sort of a new toy in the, in the, for the, for the neuroscientists. And they're learning a lot from that, but it's, it's still limited. You know, they take pictures, they, they ask people to read stuff, they see which parts of the brain light up. And, and then by inference, they say, well, we know the hippocampus is involved in spatial learning and in surprise. And, and we know the amygdala is emotion. And look, it's lighting up when there's a metaphor. The, the amygdala is lighting up when there's a metaphor. That means there's inherently some emotion in that. Uh, and that's, that's sort of the nature of a lot of the work today. And um, other work that's actually getting pretty advanced and, and I'm going to say is going to be over my head is probably good. I'm writing this book now and not in five years is, is the stuff with AI and data science where you're crunching a lot of data to try to figure out how the brain operates. And, and then those are scientific articles that even, even with my, you know, trying as hard as I can, I cannot understand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Understand this. yeah that's quite a lot. I just read something this morning that said um, there is evidence to show that that in some situations, AI medical explanations can exhibit more empathy than an actual doctor, <laughs> which is happening. Is that right? Yeah, which, yeah, too much to even fathom right now. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Let me explain what I think is the basis of the book, which is um, which is what's what's driving people to read and keep reading, and, and that's what what motivates us to do anything. And it turns out it's this component or set of components in the brain called the reward circuit. When, when you when you want something to drink, you want something to eat, you want to you want to befriend somebody, you want to look for shelter, you want to do anything that seems desirable. There's a part of the brain that is governing that. When when a stimulus comes in. Um, if it's a word or it's, it's the sign, it's a, it's the image of a donut or it's the image of a, of, of somebody that, that looks friendly, then your brain immediately evaluates that stimulus and said, is that, is that worthy? Do I want it? Do I want to pursue it? Can I learn from it? And the reward circuit is doing that. There's a bunch of components there, some of which you've heard of, like the amygdala is one component. The others you have not like a thing called the nucleus accumbens. And when that happens, dopamine is released. Now, historically, people thought dopamine created pleasure, but in fact, it doesn't create pleasure. We've learned that in more modern neuroscience. What it is, is it more signals, uh, sends signals through the reward circuit. What creates the pleasure, if this appears, not, this, the, final, the science is not absolutely final on this. What, what creates the pleasure is the dopamine stimulating release of natural opioids. There's a marijuana-like opioid, and there is a morphine-like opioid, and those are then released, and those create pleasure. So if you're getting tingles up the spine or chills or goosebumps or what have you, you, pro you probably, we can, we can guess, right? This is, this is not easy to confirm. We can guess that there were some opioids released in the brain. So, so my book, the whole book is based on what are the things that drive the reward circuit when it comes to language? What can you do in language to drive the reward circuit? And so I started just exploring that. And I, I basically collected every article I could on scientists studying language and, and scientists, scientists being relatively creative people when it comes to experiments. They'd studied a lot about a lot of different things. And I, I actually found out that some specialized in studying simple language and some specialized in 
language that drove anticipation and some specialized in stories and our age of specialization, right? You would have thought somebody specialized was just specialized in reading language, but no, there was some in all those areas. That, 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 then, that then for me allowed me to distill eight S's to, to uh, write better, to better engage your readers. Okay. So interesting. And I love that, uh, hearing about the research that you did that led you to this. And it just brings up, you know, the, the sort of, um, emotional charge we get when we get texts right now, nowadays Uh with our, nowadays, so old fashioned with our cell phones and our instant connectivity with everybody on this sort of peripheral level, not necessarily face to face, but we're constantly seeking that probably stimulus in the brain that now we're conditioned to get. Right. And and I wonder how that is, you know, affecting how language and our fiction triggers things in our brain. But that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. Let's dive into your uh, eight S's. So I'll just review them really quickly and then we'll go yeah. through them. So you yeah, have sure. uh, the keep it simple, keep it specific, keep it surprising, keep it stirring. And that's kind of the first four. And then you move into the second half, which is keep it seductive, keep it smart, keep it social and keep it story driven. Right. I love how you organized this. It's really, uh, it's so accessible, I think. And, you know, as a writer myself, I've written 32 books. And when I was first starting out, I was just wanting to get all of the information that I could. And some of it made sense, some of it didn't, you know, so much of your learning is enhanced by your experience. And now after having so much experience, when I read something like your book, as I have been doing, I feel like my brain is metaphorically lighting up because things are making so much sense. I'm, I'm just thinking, wow, yes, I can understand yeah, that. I see yeah. that. How amazing. And, you know, so I think it's, it's a really great approach and very accessible and writers should really be paying attention to this. I'm always learning. I'm curious and interested in honing my craft. And as a teacher, I know how important it is to have structure to my learning. I created the Ready, Set, Write course as a way to share a ton of what I've learned over the past 15 years with you. It's a comprehensive course that teaches you how to create your protagonist, antagonist, and your supporting characters. It has lessons on conflict, story structure, and the hero's journey, as well as what I call the essential elements of writing, setting, point of view, dialogue, mood and tone, and voice. Plus, there are lessons on scene, scene and sequel, and motivation reaction units. It took me a long time to truly internalize all of this, and my courses are a way to help you jump the line. They will guide you through the writing process so you can take the bull by the horns, so to speak, and write with real confidence. You can find out more about the WriterSpark courses and Ready, Set, Write at writersparkacademy.com forward slash courses. I'll see you in the classroom. There are eight S's, all of which um, by inference, a lot of this by inference, again, the, br- the part of the brain is lighting up that's the reward circuit when, when you, when you uh, follow any of these eight strategies. If you keep it simple, you keep it seductive, you keep it surprising, et cetera. You're, the, at the same time that happens, we're able to see in scanners that the reward circuit are the components of, of our lighting up. And so we can infer from that that there's probably pleasure involved. And, and in fact, the reward circuit kind of gets involved in every stimulus coming in the door of the consciousness. And, and our brain has, has, has marvelous ways of filtering out huge, amount, huge amounts of trash, but it does pay attention to some things. And when it pays attention, 
Um, it's often related to one of these S's, right? So keep it simple. Why is simple important? Well, it turns out simple sentences, simple words, easy processing is something that, that engages the reward circuit. I mean, it's if you write a complex sentence, you make it hard to understand. People just simply don't get a reward of dopamine and natural opioids. And why is that? I mean, scientists assume that it's because as we evolved, we evolved to, to favor people who were giving us information that was easy to process. And scientists have a word for that called processing fluency. So not only is it easier in, in terms of effort, we're actually getting a reward that's evolutionarily driven for keeping it simple. So you, so there's no, you know, long, long sentences that are hard to, hard to decipher are not, not in your interest because they're not going to engage the reader. The readers get a, that's not to say we write like ad copywriters, um, where every other word is, is um, a sentence itself, but, but shorter and, and processing, uh, f- fluently processed sentences are, 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 are rewarded. You know, you're, you're going to reward your readers. Um, specifics, we already talked a little bit about specifics. They're highly rewarding because they activate so much of the brain that creates a huge amount of fodder for the reward circuit to look at and to evaluate and, and to like. And um, so, I mean, that's pretty much... The, the importance of specifics. If you, if, you know, if you, if you write really active sentences, uh, it's just readers going to feel enriched. They, and I think we all feel that. I should say, I should say that the, 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 the research that I did in, a, in some ways defined what the muse is. What's our intuitive muse telling us when we sit down? Why is it? Why have we always been taught to write by ear? Does it sound right? Why is that? Because we are all equipped with this reward circuit that evolved over millions of years that is giving us an intuitive sense for what the scientists are now showing us. So, so you know, you, when you use these strategies, you're using them in tandem with your intuition. So your muse and the information you have from scientists work together kind of as a, as a way to double your skill set. They don't, they're not in conflict. They just reinforce each other. So I want to make that point that we're not, we're not discovering something that, that's going to overturn the, the, what the masters have always said about writing. So let me move to the third one is keep it surprising. I mean, why is surprise important? I mean, obviously we involved if there's, if there's a snake or there's something we need to to, to worry about. Uh, it's a surprise and, and we are hardwired to react to surprise extremely fast. And that's just because we, we survived and thrived that way. It's, that's pretty easy to understand. So we get a reward for that. And then stirring. Similarly, if, if there was emotion involved in language, aside from body language and aside from tone of voice, if a word implied something that that, that had emotion in it, like danger or, or fear or, or happiness, uh, we process that very quickly, and it turns out that this is extremely interesting. The 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 emotional component of a word. Say I say fear, or I say avalanche, um, or I say so fire. Actually- the, the, it, it almost seems um, counterintuitive, but your brain processes the emotional component of that word in about two hundred milliseconds, about two hundred, uh, about two tenths of a second, and it processes the full meaning of that, what the scientists call semantic meaning in 400 milliseconds. And so you are actually getting the emotional hit before you get the logical hit, so to speak. And your brain is combining those two to come up with the full meaning of, of what you're reading or what you're listening to. So emotion is, is a very powerful um, a very powerful driver of the reward circuit and a very powerful drive of, of um, engaging readers. 
And then uh, going, moving on to keep it seductive. That's that's not what you think right off, right? A seductive we think of as a sexual link, but it's it's more in the broader sense, the alluring sense, the tempting sense. And in specific, this is an area where scientists study the rewards from anticipation. Why do you why you why will you wait today to eat that piece of chocolate cake so you can have it tomorrow? Because there's a reward. There's actually a dopamine opioid reward for waiting for something you're anticipating to be really good. And, and so this says everything about fiction, right? I'm not a fiction writer, but why is suspense important? That's one reason. And why is foreshadowing and 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 maybe even flash forwarding important? It's because in the interim, you are actually giving the reader a reward. You're engaging the reader after you've hinted at something that's going to happen. They're wondering what's up. Now they're not just wondering, they are actually enjoying the wonder. So I, I found that fascinating. And that, that's, of course, true in nonfiction. Of course, nonfiction writers don't worry quite as much about suspense, but it, it, it certainly plays to engaging your reader, if, if you're, even if you're writing about financial topics. And then the next one is, is I say, keep it smart. And for that, it's, what I'm what I'm implying is not just keep it intelligent, but in, keep it insightful. Keep it keep it so that you're having leaps of insight about the human nature, about the way the world works, etc. That it turns out that when you when you when someone experiences an, an aha, and science actually have a ter- technical term for this, it's called the aha moment. That's actually what they call it. They research the aha moment. A whole part of a whole part of your brain on the right side lights up. And at the same time, there's a huge surge in the reward circuit. So when, you, when you're able to say, eh, can I make this just a little bit more illuminating, then you are driving engagement in readers. So it's, it's worth that extra effort, not, just, not to just to say something straightforward, but to say it in, in, in maybe a little more insightful way, a way that, that, that pulls your readers in and in a, in, 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 in maybe uh, surfacing a universal truth or something like that. Um, and then the, the next one is keep it social. And this is another one that's, of course, important to fiction writers. It, it, when you're reading, of course, you're not having a direct social, you're not having direct social contact with anybody. So, so in fiction, you're doing it through your characters, right? And, and what is the part that most lights up in people's brains when they are reading about other people? It's the part of the brain that is trying to figure out what's happening in the other person's brain. The scientists call this mentalizing or, or easier to understand is mind reading. You are trying to figure out what's happening in those, in those characters' brains. And that is highly rewarding. Of course, we're all wired for that. Evolutionarily, we needed to know what was happening on, in other people's brains, whether friends or foes or what have you. And that's still, of course, true today. We're always, always looking ahead. Our brain is always active trying to figure out what other people are thinking. You're trying to figure out what I'm thinking right now. I'm trying to figure out what you're thinking. You're trying to figure out what I'm thinking of you. I mean, that's that's just the way we are. We're, we're, we're wired that way. And so um, that's a very powerful, when you expose that for readers in your stories, um, that's a very powerful driver award. And then the last one is, is keep it story driven. And that, that's what fiction's about. Um, what I would like to just comment on that is I have nothing to say. I'm sure that you, you haven't already covered another podcast about story in my book, but what I, but what's interesting is the science that supports the power of story and that's what's really interesting. It just reinforces just how important that is to being human and to transmitting 
information as a human being. And I'll just I'll just cite one one aspect of the research there. And this is not fully understood, but clearly the brain is wired in a way that that is very powerful with story. When you tell me a story, the activation in your pattern in your brain, and they scan this with an fMRI, a functional MRI machine, that is duplicated in my brain. And if I then go tell someone else the story you told me, the the activity in their brain is duplicated, um, is a duplicate of mine, and then a duplicate of yours. And scientists don't fully understand why this is true. And there are other, there's other experiments that I could go into, but they don't understand why this is true. But clearly, stories have a riveting potential on human beings. So, um, so those, are the, those are the eight. And, I, and just a final comment on that is that a story is sort of a symphony of all of the, all of the, the other S's or the, all the other strategies for writing to engage readers. Sometimes when you're, especially, I think of often this in editing, you want to, you want to kind of raise the, raise your game a little bit. Sometimes it's improving your story, but sometimes it can just be improving the surprise in your sentence or the, 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 the word you chose to evoke emotion, or it could be the, the level of insight that you created, et cetera. So sometimes you could just work on one of those S's and not try to work on the eighth one, which is the symphony, uh, play one instrument at a time sometimes, and and that's that's uh, that's going to help you move you know move your sentence along that you're struggling with. Um, okay, so I have a few questions. So first of all, what I heard you saying was that the person telling the story, whether that's an oral story, a written story, is getting the same sort of brain activation that the person receiving the story is getting. Is that right? Yeah, that that's exactly right, and uh, scientists don't fully understand the ramifications of that, but that obviously um, shows that that we are wired to to connect with people when they when they tell stories. Other research shows, for example, and if you're writing you know, your whole book is, is fiction, this is significant that the longer the story goes on, the more engaged you get. If it's in in experiments, they 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 will start a story that's three sentences long. You know, we were riding in the plane, it, it crashed, but we barely survived. You know, whatever a story that's three mm-hmm. sentences long, and then they'll have some that are 150 words long, and then they'll have some that are seven or eight minutes long, and they find that the engagement increases the longer the story is. So that you know that plays to uh, fiction, obviously, long form fiction plays to to uh, engaging people just by its nature. Yeah, and it, it's interesting, and it I think goes a long way to explain why writers write because we are getting that same brain charge or you know satisfaction exactly. reward, right? If we're if we have the meaning and reward, we're getting that reward through the process of writing and telling our stories. So that's right, awesome. right, and you touch on something that's very important. There again is is what's happening when you engage readers needs to first happen in your brain. So mm-hmm. if you're trying to keep it simple, if you're not feeling engaged by having simplified a passage, then your reader probably isn't either. And if you're not feeling stirred up by having added the right emotions, because I often focus on the right emotions, it's not any emotion, but the right emotions, the appropriate ones, um, then your reader isn't either. So you're the, you're the first filter. Um, yeah. And you, should, you, know, you shouldn't feel that necessarily as a tingle, although you might, um, but, but you you know, you, you should feel it. So the, the muse and the science there again, they, they work together. 
Yeah, I, I can think of instances where I have made myself laugh out loud or made myself cry or, right. you know, whatever exactly. the emotion is. And, I, and you know, I actively think, oh, that's really good because I felt the emotion of the words that I just wrote. Right, so right, I, right. Yeah. Right. There's a great uh, Robert Frost quote, our poet our poet from New England, where I am, is uh, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader, no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader. And I mean, it's almost, you know, it's like I say, this, uh, the the science and and what we've been told by the masters of writing over the centuries, they they dovetail, they complement each other. They, they, knowing both, I think, you know, one of the things I think is it just simply gives you more confidence. Uh, if you've got a complex sense, uh, set of sentences that, that you think have a problem, all of a sudden you go, well, maybe part of the problem is they're just complex. I mean, the science shows that. So now you have confidence. And, but other, uh, if you didn't have that science, you might've thought, well, I still kind of like those long sentences. But then you have to say, well, if the processing fluency is hampered, that that means that you're going to engage the readers, the reader less. As simple as that. I think it um, goes to genre too, and you know the type of fiction that's being written. Literary fiction, you know, probably mm-hmm. just inherently mm-hmm. has more com- complex sentences compared to, say, a straight genre written book. Um, keeping it simple, I think, also probably taps into our collective reading level, which is mm-hmm. you know, not that sophisticated as a yeah, whole society, right, right, you know? So right, right. I think that if you have more complex sentences, you're going to pull the reader out because they have to stop and think about it. And you, your whole point right. with engagement as a writer is to not pull the reader out of the narrative, but to keep them fully right. immersed in it. Right, and right, so right, keeping sure. those sentences simpler allows them to just keep going, keep going, keep going without having to stop and say, wait, what did that, let me go back to the sentence and (laughs) those clauses and dependent clauses, independent clauses, and wait, I've got confused. (laughs) Yeah. And it it goes without saying, I I think it goes without saying that simpler sentences don't mean simplistic writing. They just mean more, more fluently processed. I think often, you know, when I write, uh, cause I often, my first drafts often have very long sentences. Okay. I'm writing on fiction, but they often are very long sentences. And I go, how did I ever write a sentence that long? And mm-hmm. the point is, is that you had this kind of long thought. And what you have to realize is that thought actually could be broken into two or three parts. And that's where the period comes. And that's why I, I don't know if it's said in fiction, but in nonfiction, journalists and so forth often say the period never comes soon enough. The period <laughs> needs to come when the thought is complete. And if the thought is too long, then then you need to figure out how to bring closure to it more frequently. So, you know, you're instead of giving uh, readers a, a steak to cut into, you give them, you know, you give them sirloin tips to pop in their mouth. I mean, there's mm-hmm. still, it's still should be just as nourishing. Should, brownie should still be, brownie yeah. bites. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so sim- simple, simplistic goes to sort of reading level, our ability to absorb completion of thoughts. And then uh, what I've done is kind of looked at your eight S's and connected them to what, what is sort of commonly understood in the fiction world in elements right. of writing. So specific is really showing versus telling, right? We want to get into those sensory details and create pictures and using imagery rather than telling what's happening. Right, right, right. You know, if you if you bear with me, I'd like to read um, uh, something I have here. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there are two passages in which 
the writers are, are, are describing what life is, okay? One, the first one is by Chief Crowfoot of the Blackfoot Nation. This is, a, this is in my book. Um, this, is a, this is a quote probably a lot of people have heard, but he says, what is life? It is the flash of a firefly in the night. It is the breath of a buffalo in the wintertime. It is the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. So we're defining life with specifics there. Isn't that amazing? Now, here's another one I ran across. Here's Oscar Wilde writing about life. Life is not governed by will or intention, a chance tone of color in a room or a morning sky, a particular perfume that that you had once loved and that brings subtle memories with it, a line from a forgotten poem that you had come across again, a cadence from a piece of music that you had ceased to play. I tell you, that is on that it is on things like these that our lives depend. So there's the specifics. I, I, mean, I was even thinking if you wanted a writing prompt, put in three sentence what life is, sentences and what life is using no abstractions, just using specifics to define it like that. I mean, those, those, are, those are wonderful quotes. And, and those, particularly the Chief Crowfoot one, you see that around a lot. I don't know if you've seen it before, but you see it around a lot. And that's why. I mean, it's just simple as that. The specifics drive a huge amount of activity in the brain, which in turn drives a huge reward for the, the reader. Very poetic. Yeah. Um, those, yeah, those are beautiful. I, and you don't think about it in those terms necessarily. So it's important to hear examples and read examples exactly. of these so that we can begin to internalize how to do that ourselves. Um, all right. So surprising, the, the surprising S is really about conflict, creating conflict. And, um, you know, when you write a scene, you have goal, motivation, mm-hmm. conflict, and disaster, mm-hmm. and you're leaving your mm-hmm. scene on some sort of new story question, new scene uh-huh. question. So you're uh-huh. continually surprising the reader with what's going to come next. Uh-huh. So that makes perfect sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and surprise again, you know, when you're editing, surprise can also be just a just a, a turn of phrase that's that's surprising. The reader enjoys that too. I, I mentioned that a lot in my book. Um, some examples there. Um, one I like is uh, uh, John Steinbeck wrote at one point in his book. He was describing Monterey, and he said it was. So this is um, Travels with Charlie in Search of America, one of his, his nonfiction pieces, that, that the town was undirtied by undiapered minds. Now, how can, <laughs> how, can you, how can you beat that for surprise, right? Um, or or there's, a, there's a novel about Guadalupe. I went to Guadalupe and read a novel by a local um, novelist there. And she was describing, a, a per, this is in the book by Simone Schwartzbart. I want to give her credit. She wrote in her book about one of the characters. She was a vanilla pod that had burst in the sun and at last gives forth all its perfume. I mean, how can you beat stuff like that? Just just little surprises, right? It's it's not even it's not even your plot, but just little right. surprises. Readers like that too. Right. And I think that really almost taps into the emotion too. And that's what you're saying. Everything works in tandem. But Mm -hmm. yeah. And going back to these S's as they apply to the writer as well as the reader, I'm a hybrid plotter, pantser, definitely. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, as I do research on whatever it is I'm working on in that particular moment, I have so many surprising moments, aha moments that inform uh-huh. where I'm going to go with the book or some detail that I'm going to add. And I I feel that tingle that you were describing. You know, I, mm-hmm. I feel mm-hmm. that very viscerally that this 
brilliant thing has just happened and it surprised mm-hmm. me, which mm-hmm. means it's going to be able to surprise my reader. Yeah. So it's, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's, it's working on both sides of the fiction book from the writer to the reader. Right. Right. Exactly. No, you captured it perfectly there. Yeah. Um, okay. So stirring, we talked about emotions already and just, you know, having that sort of visceral experience or just tapping into the human experience and the emotions that we all, you know, that, that are universal to us. So that's, you know, one thing that is something that writers are always trying to tackle. And then anticipation, seductive is your next S and that really builds to anticipation, which, which I love. That's the word that came to mind when you were describing it. And then you said anticipation. And I think that's exactly right. And that's what we all are trying to do is to keep the reader wanting to know what's next with those right. story questions, with right. those questions and things like that. So, yeah, the, in, the, in that case, you know, I, I, you know, from my point of view as a nonfiction writer, it's all about the setup. There's sort of the promise and then there's the payoff. Mm-hmm. So there's there's got to be a set of promises going on all the time. In nonfiction, it could be a simple topic sentence. I like to tell people that I feel like, you know, uh, eighth grade English teachers are are vindicated by the research because it shows that topic sentences not only help you integrate the material that comes after it. Now, I'm not recommending topic sentences necessarily for fiction, but they make a promise to the reader that something's there's going to be a payoff, and so there it creates a little bit of anticipation. Now, obviously, in in a lot of high school homework, there's there's not a lot of pleasure in the anticipation, but it does still work even at that level. Yeah. Well, in terms of fiction, that's what romance and mysteries are all about. You know, you have the anticipation of this hero and heroine getting together in the end and this push and pull all the way through. And with the mysteries, you have the red herrings and the misdirections and the little bits of clue and the reader trying to stay ahead of the sleuth. And same with suspense, you know, because the reader is more informed than the characters in the book, usually, because we have the the, uh, villains point of view being told to us so all of the anticipation can come in many different forms but you know and i this is absolutely dating myself but you know the whole love story between sam and diane in cheers for example Mm -hmm. or maddie and david in moonlighting or Uh you know more contemporary maybe friends but it's that it's that anticipation of when are they going to kiss? When is this going to happen? But then as soon as it does, we don't care anymore. It's like, okay, it's over. Right. We were really That's in it right. for the anticipation. Right, 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 right. There's a quote by Alfred Hitchcock. I don't think I can get it quite right, but he basically says there's there's basically no reward in the in the the terror. The reward is in the run-up to the terror. I mean, mm-hmm. he said something more eloquent than, than that. But even in a horror story, I mean, I, I don't know if any of your listeners write horror, but even there, it's all the anticipation. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, just just for a bit of mind candy here, there's a great experiment um, that that's in my book, but it's a great experiment that's done by a guy named George Lowenstein. Uh, it's a seminal experiment where he asks students um, a bunch of questions about how much they would value things, and one of them was a kiss from a, a celebrity of their choice. And then after that, learning how much they pay for that, he asked, how much more would you pay if you delayed it for a day, for three days, or even for a year? And it turned out 
the the students would pay the most delaying it for one or th- one or three days, uh, something like that, and even would still pay more for delaying it for a year. Mm-hmm. So the, the so the, the this is a scientist right saying saying the the anticipatory utility went up with that shorter uh, delayed period. So you're actually getting the sum of two things. You're getting the pleasure of the payoff and you're getting the pleasure of the anticipation added together. And human beings make that calculation intuitively that I'm going to get the most pleasure. It goes back to the chocolate cake again, right? I'm going to get the most pleasure, not if I eat this chocolate cake right now, but if I put it aside and I think about it, enjoy the thought of eating it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And we're it. hardwired that way. We're yeah. hardwired that way. We get a reward. We get a reward. I mean, the dopamine is going. I mean, we're actually uh, getting a neural reward for for that period of anticipation. Which, in fiction writing, I think it's really important to understand that and to make sure that your subplots are working in a similar fashion. Because once your main plot post climax is resolved, you still want the readers to finish the book. And that means wrapping up your subplots as well and Uh offering that uh resolution uh or the, you know, return with the elixir if it's the hero's journey or whatever. And that has to be a payoff from that anticipation as well. So it's not just one line of anticipation. It's multiple based on all of your subplots. Otherwise, as soon as the hero and the heroine kiss, that's it. The story's over. Close the book, even though you might have a whole nother chapter left. Right, right, right. Right. Build it up. Yeah, and you're relying on your setups earlier in the earlier in the book to to carry the reader along because they're anticipating. Mm-hmm. They're anticipating. They're enjoying the anticipation of your tying that all together at the end. Right, and in mysteries, you know, we t- have talked on this podcast in the past about how mysteries, uh, specifically cozy mysteries differ a lot now from how they were originally written. And you look at Agatha Christie books, for example, mystery is solved. That's it. It's over. And here now we write very character driven mysteries with sluice that carry a series. And so we've got these subplots that are connected to their lives and the society, the you know community of people that we've created. And you have to have this series arc that's connected to those mm-hmm. people and to mm-hmm. your sleuth or your heroine or your hero, whatever. And mm-hmm. that's, that's what it's all about. It's about that anticipation of this entire story arc that you've created. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Those uh, are, those are certain techniques you use way more in fiction than in nonfiction, but you can see how there's still basic fundamental drivers of, of what makes us human, right? What's what, what we get rewarded for. Yeah, exactly. And then keeping it smart, which I, you know, I have uh, one particular series that has a lot of Irish history in it. And Uh I have another series that has sort of an alternate history with Butch Cassidy. And so I pull in those historical elements and I get reader feedback quite often about that they learned something. They love to read yeah, something yeah. that's, you know, light fiction, genre fiction, whatever, but they get to learn something along the way. So I think it also adds depth when you layer in something greater than the story that the reader can take away, whether Absolutely. that's insight, Absolutely. as you mentioned, or whether it's actual knowledge of something concrete, historical, but building in something deeper that the reader can take away, I think, uh, engages them more, just yeah. invests them yeah. more. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, that's true. That statement, you could make that statement um, and, and put that word, those words in my mouth to nonfiction mm-hmm. authors that I work with. When you're writing serious stuff, well, you might be writing about um, leadership. That's the easiest one to choose. But And your leadership is about leading a corporation. But but I say to them, okay, so that's great. But you need to you need to also surface more perennial truths about that, things that resonate more deeply with us as human beings. So okay, so this point you're going to make is about leadership in the corporation. But what about leadership in the community, or in the family, or in the nation? Does that will it resonate on all those levels? If it doesn't resonate on the, all those levels, then I say then maybe you need to rethink it because the reader we are all like this, thinks in analogies. And they're always not only thinking about what's in front of them, mm-hmm. whether it's the story of a of a, a technical topic or it's a story in fiction, they're thinking about those analogies in their own lives. And, and, and make sure that when you write, those analogies are apparent. You don't have to, you don't have to spell it out for the reader, but mm-hmm. just r- write it in a way that you, they surface those more universal truths. And that's where the readers get their own ahas. And that's the most that's the most rewarding aha when you have come to one on your own, not not one you're led to. And that's what happened with me as I was reading your book and making I was making these connections to what I already know about writing fiction and thinking, oh yes, that's that's what this means. I already knew that, no. but this is a new way to look at it, which I think when you have multiple ways to look at something, it it can help solidify it or it can help you really Absolutely. internalize it on a deeper level. And that's that's what I took away from this book on a lot, a lot of instances. So I think that was exciting for me, you know, and especially after 32 books when I, I, I feel like I'm always going to be learning. But when I get something that's really an aha for me that that's really making a strong connection about my craft, that's pretty exciting. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I say it kind of doubles your skill set. You know, listen to your muse, but listen to the neuroscientists too. They're mm-hmm. saying the same thing and you get it from two different, two different, very different angles. And that reinforces it. It gives you more confidence as a writer. And of course, confidence is all important. You know, and it's something that writers can take away and or refer back to when we get that writer's block. I don't really necessarily believe in writer's block because I believe in moving forward to something else, Mm -hmm. not not getting stuck and staying there. But, you know, when you do get stuck in something, then you can refer to these eight S's and think about, okay, what can I pull? What can I do to this scene that's going to pull in one of these things that I know is going to engage my readers. So it's really a concrete tool to use. Yeah, it is. Like I say, you know, how can I, raise the insight level in this paragraph. How can I create some anticipation? Should I have a little setup here to get people wondering what I'm going to, what's coming next? It could be just later in that passage of dialogue. You know, it doesn't have to be later in the book. I mean, you can, you can do it from uh, at the micro level and at the macro level. Oh, that's such a great point. Yeah. We want to look at it in sentences, in paragraphs, in scenes, in the scene and sequel scenes, the two parts of a scene, and then as a story whole. So we can look at these eight S's in many different ways and apply them to our writing in many, on many different levels. Exactly. 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 Um, Okay. So social, we have social, which is, I think the reason that we read in so many instances, it's because we want to connect, we want to understand, we want to experience things that are outside of our normal world, perhaps, Mm -hmm. but also Mm -hmm. on that more subliminal level, 
we are understanding people. We're understanding society. We're understanding humanity. We're understanding different things right. that are social within our world, but maybe not entirely accessible or that we don't understand on, on the level that we want to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is, which is yeah. Hard to read. Yeah. And nonfiction, as you say, the, 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 you know, and I think you could, if I was writing this book for only for fiction authors, I, and I was a fiction author, like you are, I, I would, probably have a different chapter, but in, but in nonfiction, I mean, the key thing is again, getting people to wonder about what other people are wondering, the complexity of, of their internal, their internal dialogue, their, their internal um, speculation about what's going on with other people. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating, right? We're, we're hardwired to do that. I mean, we're extremely active with that. And we kind of, we get a huge amount of reward from doing that, whether we're doing it face to face or whether we're doing it in a while we're reading a book and wondering what's going on between the between the two characters that are there on the page. It's so great to think about it in a new way like that and what we are trying to do as writers and what we're trying to get readers to take away and that probably a lot of us do it subliminally or you know unconscious subconsciously sure. anyway sure. but to to think about it more actively I think gives us a lot of tools that we can use. Exactly. Yeah. And and then the final S uh, was story driven, which we've talked about, you know, a little bit, but that engagement, I think it goes back to understanding the elements of a story, whether, whether you, the writer use the three act structure or the hero's journey or a four act structure, whatever Mm -hmm. your um, snowflake method, whatever your method of telling a story is, you need to have a solid story that you are Mm -hmm. telling. Mm-hmm. in order mm-hmm. to ultimately engage the reader. Because if you are lacking right. any of those key plot twists, building up to the climax, you know, your story is going to fall flat. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's correct. Uh, you, you know way more about fiction than I do. Uh, that, but, but there's research also that shows the, the rise and fall of activity in the brain in different parts with the, with the rising fall of the action in, in stories. So um, getting that getting that right is something people very actively follow. We're just mm-hmm. we're just wired to follow a story. Uh, you know, scientists and also think that the um, the story was a convenient way of conveying lessons. That's sort of the the most standard view that that it, it's so effective with cause and effect and so forth to learn lessons from that we were hardwired to that that was actually favored during. There's actually some research that shows in hunter gatherer tribes. There's one set of one big research study done in the Philippines of a hunter-gatherer tribe, a current one, um, that that the the best storytellers in the in the tribe and in the in the different villages of the tribe were always the most revered. And it turned out that they also had slightly larger families. Hmm. So if you're into evolution, what it means is that storytelling ability is being selected for. If the storytellers are always having larger families and they're passing on their genes that are good at storytelling, then what it means is that every generation gets better at telling stories. So the faculty of having, uh, of the faculty foretelling and deciphering stories, uh, you know, this is, this is just one research study could actually be evolutionarily driven. That's what fables are all about is teaching those yeah. lessons, learning from them and even mythology, telling right. stories to explain the right. unexplainable, right? Right, right, right. So yeah, so you're in a very, you're in a hardwired, you're in a, what we can say neuroscience is saying is a hardwired profession now. You're dealing with the hardwiring of the brain. <laughs> 
Well, Bill, I want to thank you so much for being here. These eight S's, this book, it's fascinating. And again, for me, it triggered all kinds of connections to what I already know. So I highly recommend this. Everybody who's listening, anybody who's watching, I really highly recommend getting writing for impact because, you know, you're going, you, the writer are going to have all kinds of moments where your brain is lighting up with these connections that this book will make for you. And I really strongly believe it's going to enhance your fiction writing. So I think it's a great book and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about it with me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, it's it's nice to hear that that that's the way you feel because, as they say, you know, these 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 eight S's. Uh, I I think of them as hardwired primal desires. I mean, people want surprise, people want it stirring, people want it story driven, and so if you give it to them, and they're going to get a reward for it. So there's the motto of my book: reward your reader. I like to say that people don't read what you write because they like your style; they read what you write because they like how you reward them. Right. It's how it's how you feel. Right? People say you're not you don't might not necessarily remember a teacher, but you're going to remember how they made you feel. Exactly. It's yeah. that's what it's about. Reward yourself. And when you reward yourself, you reward your reader. Right. Just as you were saying earlier. Thank you again, Bill, for being here. This has been so fascinating. And again, I encourage everybody to go out and buy this book, Writing for Impact. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you so much for listening and spending your time with me today, everyone. I'm Melissa Bourbon, and this is the Writer's Spark Podcast. Take a moment to visit our website at www.writersparkacademy.com. Check out our courses, our resources, and all the content there. And I will see you next time. Until then, happy writing.